by death and real estate and estate planning, what I'm talking about are making sure that your investments are going uh, will be inherited by the people you intended them to be inherited by, to make sure that you're not paying too much taxes as a result of your death, and to make sure that the transition is as smooth and simple as it can possibly be. That's really it. Just to make sure that without fanfare, without taxes, your assets get passed on to those you intended to. You found the Real Estate Law Podcast. Because real estate is more than just pretty pictures, and law goes well beyond the paperwork and courtroom arguments. If you're a real estate professional or looking to build real estate expertise, then welcome to the conversation and discover more at realestatelawpodcast.com. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Real Estate Law Podcast. And we have such a variety of topics on this podcast and we haven't tackled this one just yet. Uh, Much of what we discuss here is actionable information, Uh, It's relevant. It could be related to buying a home, selling a home, investing in property. Uh, But this topic actually is important for all of those different types of people. And today we're going to be talking about death and real estate. Now, what does that mean? Well, I don't really know, but our attorney broker, Rory Gill from Next Home Title Town Real Estate and Urban Village Legal uh, has an awful lot of insight into this topic. So uh, first, we should welcome Rory. How are you, Rory? Hey, Jason. Sorry for the bummer of a topic today. It's just that I've been doing a lot of this work lately, and I've been helping a lot of people plan through some of this. So I figured I'll take some of the insight that I've been discussing with them um, and share these concepts with everybody. Yeah. I mean, this is something that people should be planning for uh, if you're going to undertake any kind of real estate transaction. You know, we're all, as a society, we're living longer, you know, despite some of the recent health uh, scares that we've all seen with COVID. Uh, But, you know, that trend is going to go up. I've seen some stats recently that show that people that are born today are more likely to hit their 100th birthday than ever before. So I think that, you know, planning ahead for the inevitable is is something that is something that everyone should be doing uh, who's investing in real estate. Um, And, you know, when you say you've been having a lot of these discussions lately, Rory, um, you know, what are what kind of overall topics are they related to? Um, a lot of people are taking, um, we're recording this toward the end of the year. I'm not sure if this is a lot of people taking stock in the year, but I've had a surge of people coming through the office, just planning ahead for these things. It's, for a lot of people, this is just something on the back burner that they've been pushing off, that it's not particularly urgent to put together your estate plan just right now, um, but it's a lot easier than a lot of people think. Uh, and the concepts are also pretty easy to understand. Um, so I want to make sure that real estate investors particularly understand uh, the importance of thinking ahead um, for their own death. If you've met, speak, taken a lot of this time to put together this real estate empire, uh, to choose these investments, to run these investments, you want to make sure that they continue on um, past, your, past your time. Okay. I should say a couple things, first of all. Uh, first, if you've been listening to this podcast for some time and you haven't had a chance to subscribe uh, to our, our feed on YouTube or on um, iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, we're all over the place and we would love you to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Uh, we also welcome comments, 
we would love it if you can give this a big thumbs up because that really helps with all the algorithms and having other people find us. Uh, we're getting comments from people near and far. Uh, sometimes people walking into the office talking about it, meeting us at networking events, or just shooting us emails uh, with comments about previous episodes. And you know, we'd love it if you could help spread the word um, and uh, give us all that great will uh, that the the platforms really reward. Now, with that said, uh, I'm also going to say that this particular conversation needs a disclaimer, and I'm not the attorney, but I'm going to read this disclaimer that you sent over, Rory. We're talking about some basic concepts, but this is not legal or financial advice. If you hear something that catches your attention, talk over your situation with a local attorney. That's absolutely right. We're going to just introduce some topics, some things to think about. Um, like everything, a lot of it varies state to state. So talk to a trusted attorney um, to, to take these concepts and to put them into action in a way that makes sense for you. Okay. All right. So with that said, um, why don't you kick us off, Rory? What are some of the first things uh, that will be, or what are some of the things we'll be discussing in this episode about death and real estate? All right. So by death and real estate and estate planning, what I'm talking about are making sure that your investments are going uh, will be inherited by the people you intended them to be inherited by, to make sure that you're not paying too much taxes as a result of your death, and to make sure that the transition is as smooth and simple as it can possibly be. That's really it. Just to make sure that without fanfare, without taxes, your assets get passed on to those you intended to. So I can launch right into what I think are the six general ways that people uh, pass their assets on down to, to their heirs. Okay, that's that's probably a good starting point, and everyone loves a great list. So, what are the six ways that we'll be talking about today? All right, way number one is with a will. Um, this is kind of the the general way that everybody knows to do it. But if you execute a will in the proper way, um, you can determine who's going to inherit your assets. What's great about a will is that you can come up with a creative range of uh, ways to divide up your assets to. Um, put conditions on there to set backup beneficiaries, or even to put restrictions on the inheritances that you give. A will is kind of a great catch-all and flexible way to do all this. And But this creates a lot of work up front. This is when you really do need to go speak with an attorney, have it done properly for where you live. And then when you pass away, the courts will likely oversee some part of it. So there is some additional work and hassle there. But this is the broadest, most flexible way to divide up your assets when you pass. So that was way number one. So with a will, that's a way I think that everybody, where, where there's a will, there's a way. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's, there's, I think that's something that everybody understands, right? People get mm-hmm. the last will and testament. It's in uh, Hollywood has used it. It's uh, you know in lots of movies. It's in sitcoms. It's in dramas. Is that something that as an attorney, you, I know that you write wills. Is that a basic thing in, in law school? Like can any attorney draw up a will or is it a certain type of attorney that one should look for when looking for a will? It depends how complicated your state is. If a brand new attorney right out of law school can write a basic will or should be able to write a basic will, but the more complicated your, your finances and situation are, the more reason you have to go see a specialist. There are state planning attorneys who just write wills all the time. Um, And even more specifically, there are uh, estate planning attorneys who might specialize in a certain type of client, a high net value client, a client with international connections, a client um, that has gone through a divorce and has uh, potential um, family conflicts there. Or in my case, I work with a lot of uh, people who are real estate investors whose net worth is disproportionately tied up in real estate. Um, And that changes everything. So you can go to a, a broad attorney and get something done, particularly if your situation is simple. But if you have the more complicated 
your situation is, the more I would encourage you to see a, a specialist that lines up with what you need. All right. So that's way number one for uh, estate planning to make sure your assets are passed to the right people. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is way number two? Way number two is the joint tenancy. So if you have co-owners in a property, you can actually make sure that the deed says that all of your co-owners will inherit your your share of the property when you pass away. This is easy. There's very little work that has to be done. You do this once when you get the property and it'll stick around. This kind of creates a last man standing situation. So if you have two joint tenants, person A and person uh, B are deceased, well, the person C is going to inherit the whole a whole property. So think through if that's what you intended, but this is a very simple way that requires very little work to ensure that it gets passed on to the right people, particularly your co-owners. And that is called joint tenancy. Yep. Joint tenancy in some states like Massachusetts have tenancy by the entirety, which is essentially the same thing, but for spouses um, and that can't be broken. So no one person can unilaterally change their mind on that. Okay. What's the third way? Third way is similar. It's a life estate. It's in a deed. Um, So you can actually put into the deed itself who your heirs are going to be. This is a little bit more complicated. I'll talk a little bit later with uh, some of the complexities about this, but you can actually say, I'm going to give my property to my son. However, during I have the right to use and occupy and collect the rents on the property so long as I'm alive. My retained right is called a life estate. Uh, the son, my son, in that case, would be the remainder man, but you can actually put it into the deed who is going to inherit the property. That is simpler than a will. You only have to do this one time and it go in, it holds, um, but it adds some com- complicated issues when you go to run the property. Like, like what? So if you, when you give a, the, when you name your heir in the property, if you wanted to change your mind or if you wanted to mortgage the property or if you wanted to sell the property while you're still alive, you now need to go get that person's assent too because that person was already given a future interest in the property. So in an example where I retained a life estate for myself and gave my son uh, the remainder interest, if I wanted to get a mortgage or sell the property while I'm still alive, I would have to get my son's permission and have him sign off on the deed. Okay. And that's, and that's all for a life estate, right? That's a life estate. This is more popular with people who are older, who own the property outright, and know for a fact that they want to um, hold the property until they die. All right. So what's the fourth way? Way number four is a revocable trust. Um, This is where you actually deed the property into a trust um, right now. And this is similar to a will because it opens up a lot of flexibility and creative ways that you can have the property be managed and passed down. And you can, you know, like the name suggests, it's a revocable trust. You can change your mind and pull it back out of the trust and put it into your own name. What's great about this option is um, like the will is flexible, but unlike the will, this is largely not going to need court oversight. So when you pass away, the trustee named in the trust documents will take over and manage the property, you know, as you uh, dictated in the trust. You know, there's very little court supervision. Um, this is used a lot with high net value um, individuals or people who have, you know, a complicated holding um, of real estate. So you can set this up once. It's a lot of work up front, but it's easier down the road. Are you setting this up for each property? Largely not, although you can. Um, you can create, I, typically I'd put it into one and just make sure that it, it's consistent all the way through. Mm-hmm. 
Now, let's compare way number four to way number five, which is an irrevocable trust. So can you explain the difference between those two? Way number five is an irrevocable trust. This means you're putting it into the trust and as the name suggests, you can't change your mind. So once you've put that property into the trust, you can't take it back and put it in your own name. It's locked up and the people who are named in the trust as the beneficiaries are going to be the beneficiaries. So there's a lot less flexibility in this option. Um, and for that reason, anybody who's younger or less certain with what they want to do often discourage this form. This was a popular vehicle. When we talk about taxes, I'll kind of go into that, but this is a popular vehicle to take it out of your name if you really want to take it out of your name. Irrevocable trust is largely inflexible. These will be largely reserved for the very high net value people. Mm -hmm. So what is the sixth way? The sixth way is if you have the property in an LLC or a corporation, you can, in that case, you're not actually passing along the property itself. You're passing along your interests in the business. With this, this is a, can be a little bit more complicated, but you want to make sure that the business documents, so the operating agreement uh, of the business and your will are consistent and don't contradict each other. Because if they're consistent, it'll largely it'll largely go pretty easily. But if you are setting up a conflict where your will says one thing and the business documents say another thing, you're setting yourself up for a little bit of a squabble later on. But you can, but the idea is that you have a property in a, in a business, you're passing on that business to your heirs just the same. Now, are all these ways consistent across the board throughout the U.S.? Uh, yeah, I know you specialize in Mass and New Hampshire. Um, and you probably don't know the laws of every specific state, but are these some fundamental similarities or are there some situations where some of these, you know, are not considered valid in certain states? So these options exist in all states. The complexity of each is going to vary state to state um, and the specifics of each is going to vary state to state. And then the tax planning is going to vary a little bit, but these options do exist in every single state. So before we talk about the tax planning, what happens if you don't have a will? This is the, the problem with not having a will is that you're going to invite a lot of court oversight into what happens here. So if you don't have a will, the court is going to decide who your rightful heirs are. Now, this is known. This is going to be an order of um, family, you know, family proximity. Your spouse is going to be the first taker. If you do not have a living spouse, then it will be your children um, and equal shares. If you don't have any living children, then it will be your parents. And there's a family tree of priority that will take place here. But the court is going to want to make sure that every potential heir is notified. There was a proper search done to find everybody. And then the courts, because you haven't designated anybody to handle the estate, the court is going to take a really close look and make sure that the division of assets is being done equitably. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about death and real estate, and we've been discussing, uh, first of all, estate planning uh, to make sure that your assets go to the intended parties uh, if you were to pass on. But there is another component to this, and it's not just who or who receives your assets or where do they go or how are they distributed, uh, but there is a tax planning component to it. And you know the tax laws change on a fairly regular basis. I'm sure yep. there are some things that are uh, you know, consistent and have been consistent over time. But as inflation creeps in, uh, limits increase, as administrations change uh, and government policy changes, 
you know, then the rules that are set forth by, you know, different administrations uh, could tend to vary uh, the tax plans. And what is relevant today uh, might not have been relevant many years ago, and it might not be relevant in the future. So, you know, as you, as you listen to this, uh, whenever you hear this, just make sure you double check everything with a great tax attorney. But um, this is information that is current as of now. Uh, we're recording this at the end of 2021, and I'm sure it's still going to be relevant um, in uh, in the coming months and probably the coming years. But again, double check just in case uh, some of these limits change. So let's talk about tax planning, Rory. Yeah, so you're absolutely right. So there's a moving target. A lot of the advice changes year to year. And that's why I'm going to hesitate to talk about specific numbers because they can become obsolete very quickly and they certainly have been. Um, but the, some of the concept have, concepts have remained pretty similar. For people who are large, who, are, who have a lot of real estate holdings, there's a tension in tax planning between trying to avoid capital gains tax and trying to avoid the estate tax. Um, the capital gains tax is probably the most important to most real estate investors. Capital gains tax is when you, you know, if you sell a property for a million dollars that you purchase for $500,000, you have a $500,000 gain on that, that property. So you have to pay the capital gains tax on that $500,000. Typically in your lifetime, it's a good problem to have. Um, we can have another whole podcast on how that works. But one advantage for um, in death and real estate is what's called a stepped up basis. So if you purchased a home for $200,000 in the 70s, and it's now worth $600,000, when you pass it on at the time of your death, the person who inherits it from you will have a basis of $600,000, the value at the time of your death. This means effectively that that $400,000 gain has been forgiven. So if you hold a property in your name until you die, the person who inherits it from you will not owe the capital gains tax, capital gains that accrued um, during your lifetime. So this is a major benefit for somebody who has a great deal of real estate holdings and they want to pass it on to the next generation. Probably shouldn't get into a political conversation about generational wealth right now. In fact, you know, none of this has to do with values about uh, whether the rules of the game are fair. I'm just trying to introduce what the rules of the game actually are. Uh, and the step-up basis um, matters for, for people who are holding real estate. And I say it's in tension with the, the estate tax, because if the capital gains tax were the only thing you had to worry about, you'd want to make sure that everything stayed in your name or effectively in your name until you passed away. That way, tons of capital gains would be forgiven at the time of your death. It, when you get to a certain well, level of wealth, though, you're running up against the estate tax, which tax on your entire estate if you meet the threshold of value. Right now, that threshold is relatively high. It's $11 million, $11.7 million for this particular year. This is the moving target that we're talking about that goes up and down year over year. So once your estate, real estate and non-real estate assets starts to approach that limit, now you have an estate planning concern where you may want to take certain parts of your assets and actually take them out of your name and put them into something like an irrevocable trust or start gifting it to your heirs while you're still alive. This is oh, That strategy is long and complicated, but that's the limit that you should know about. That limit used to be $5 million a couple of years ago, and that 
affected a, a lot more people that I encounter. And $11 million is becoming less and less of a concern, which means that we want to plan exclusively for the capital gains. But this is the moving target. This changes politically. This changes economically. Um, so if this is something that might impact you, keep an eye on this and check in on it every single year. Did that federal estate tax threshold jump right from $5 million to $11.7 million? Like, was that, uh, that was, those were the stages, do you know? Yep, that was the jump, and that was, um, that was political under the last administration. Right. Okay, that's quite a jump. Um, yep. You know, you, you see 401k limits increasing by $500 to $1,000 you know, a year, uh, but, you know, that's, that's the jump up to $11 million, so... Yep. Um, then, I, I see what you're saying also, like, you know, a lot of people aren't going to hit that threshold. So you might as well do the planning for uh, capital gains taxes up to that point. And then mm -hmm. if you hit that level, like if you're at, if you're at 12 million, which is just over 11.7, uh, does that trigger everything or, or is there just a component that's above the 11.7? So they have, that's the complexities um, could make for another whole podcast, but the old rule was that it would trigger across the whole estate. So it would um, be incredibly important if you're around the threshold to monitor exactly where you are. They've taken a little bit of that bite out of it right now. Um, but if you're around that threshold, it may be a good problem to have, but you really need to sit down and have a detailed conversation with attorney. So I'll hesitate mm -hmm. to give yeah. that advice, but if you're approaching that limit and you haven't done so already, you need, you need to talk to an estate planning specialist. Or it sounds like you might want to go on a spending spree and buy lots of ridiculous things to get yourself below that. Ridiculous consumable things, right? Lavish <laughs> vacations. Right. Don't purchase other assets with it. That won't, that won't accomplish the same. But, and then lots of, other, lots of states, including ours, Massachusetts, will have an estate tax of their own. The state, estate tax here starts at a million dollars. However, it's not as... Um, brutal as the federal estate tax. So if somebody starts to have a, more than a million dollars of wealth in Massachusetts, you're still looking to for the capital gains portion. You're, that's your largest concern, especially if you have a lot of real estate assets, is to to monitor that. It's not as it's not as expensive. It's not as um, punitive um, at, at, at the state level, but. The particular math is going to vary state to state, depending on how that state um, imposes an estate tax. Okay. So we're talking about uh, making sure the assets are getting passed to the right people, talking about tax planning right now. Um, you know, so what is the uh, level of complexity for each of these different methods? So I'll run through each one and talk about the, you know, where, well, before we move on to the complexity of each, just we talked about the six different types. Five of them are going to um, favor the stepped-up basis. So if you have a will, if you're disposing of your assets in a will, um, then the properties in your name to your death, you'll be getting a stepped-up basis. Um, same thing with a joint tenancy, you'll be getting a stepped-up basis in your share of the property um, at the time of your death. Same thing with the life estate. Um, if you're passing on a property to a re remainder man after life estate, um, you'll be getting a stepped-up basis. And with a revocable trust, you will be getting a stepped-up basis. The big one to watch out for is that irrevocable trust. The idea is if you've put something into a trust and you can't take it back, it's not yours anymore. So the stepped-up doesn't, basis doesn't apply because it wasn't your property at the time of your death. So watch out for that with the irrevocable trust. Kind of running through those same things with the level of complexity. There's the traditional will. Um, this is Everybody should have a will regardless for 
there are any assets that may not be covered in a trust or in a real estate planning document. And the will will do the job just fine. The problem with a will is that some court supervision called probate. And if you have a large, larger complex real estate empire and you want to engage in transactions like taking out a mortgage or selling properties, it may be held up for a time while it's in court. So if that's something that's important to you, um, maybe keep your real estate assets outside of the core estate. So outside of the, the, the will and only use the will as a backup for your other assets or um, just in case another um, part of your estate plan falls through. How long could it be hung up in court? Typically a year from when um, the, the probate was opened. What they're doing in the probate process is giving any of your um, creditors a chance to, to raise their hand and speak up and ask for any money that they might be owed. And also giving people who um, may want to challenge your will, any disinherited heirs, give them a chance to raise their hand and um, argue against the will. Um, so the will is fine, but it has an added level of complexity, which um, encourages a lot of people to look at something else. The joint tenancy is incredibly simple. Um, the moment you pass away, the remaining owners of the property um, are, take over your share of, the, of it. There's nothing that really needs to be done. A buyer of the property might want them to go out and get a death certificate just to show the, the chain of title. Um, or if it's registered land here, there might be an affidavit saying that you didn't get a divorce. Um, but it's relatively simple to pass with a joint tenancy. It's one of the easiest ways to, to go. Um, the, the problem with joint tenancy though is the last man standing pro problem. So if you have spouse A and spouse B um, together and spouse B is their survivor, spouse B gets the entire property. Um, but then that means spouse B will be the one that gets to determine um, who inherits the property after them. Uh, or you may have, it also matters for an order of death situation. If two spouses die pretty close in time to each other, the last one to die, their estate is going to determine the downstream um, inheritors of the property. So you do end up with a bit of, while the joint tenancy is incredibly simple among the co-owners, it can create um, kind of a last man standing um, survivor problem. Yeah. So with, uh, with joint tenancy, you're saying it's as simple as taking a death certificate and saying, Hey, listen, you know, this is, this is now my property. Um, our, my business partner, my whomever has passed away. Yep. So if you hold, if you hold it title to property as joint tenants, all you need is a death certificate for the, the deceased person and their share is now on record as belonging to the remaining people. It is yeah. as simple as that. You know, in, in seeing all this, and, and I know that there's a number, uh, there's a few others that you're just going to discuss about, you know, the estate plans. This is why, you know, title and researching title can be really confusing uh, to people that are just looking to buy property. I'm thinking about, you know, just decades and centuries of land ownership, you know, here in the United States. Uh, and, and many of those landowners, you know, are dead now, right? People from the 1800s, early 1900s. And if you're looking for a chain of title for a piece of property and the property, you know, the land has likely existed all this time, you know, we're, I guess, sometimes we're creating additional, uh, additional land on top of landfills and, uh, you know, filling in the, I don't know, parts of, <laughs> parts of the back bay here in Boston. But 
um, you know, you're you're looking at uh, a title that that has people that aren't around anymore. So people need to use documents to figure out, you know, who owned what and what the chain of command was or the chain of ownership was uh, when a piece of property, you know, kind of moves its way through, uh, you know, past generations. So, you know, you're just relying upon what, what's been recorded, right? And, and what's officially been signed and, you know, what, what, what sits there at, uh, at town hall. You know, recently we had a situation where a husband and wife had a um, a claim on title, and they were both deceased. Well, you have to go and look at the order of the death. There, they held title as joint tenants. The husband passed away first, and the wife passed away second. That means that the we don't care about the husband's estate or his will or his probate because we know that everything went to the wife. So we're only looking at the wife's estate and probate to determine who are the heirs that have the claim on title. You know, it's complicated, but it's formulaic. We can take a look and see, just apply the rules to the records that we have on file. Are you applying, or is one applying rules that are in line today versus rules that might've been in existence, you know, 50 years ago when, something shifted from one person to another? No, on the rules that affect at the time. So you do have to keep track of what the rules were um, in different eras. It's a lot of detective work. Okay. All right. That's just too complicated. Yep. Uh, that's why I'm not, that's why I don't do that. <laughs> but usually, but usually things are cured. If things have been held in 20 or 50 years, um, the old claims and title will fall to this wayside. So you don't have to go back to eight. You don't have to go back to 1800 to, to see who, you know, who the competing claims were back then. You can, you don't have to go back that far. Okay. Uh-huh. Um, so the other uh, matters of establishing you know, who you're passing it on to, you know, what, what mm-hmm. are the, what's the complexity for the other ones we talked about today? The life estate is going to be just the same as a joint tenancy, except it's a different name person. So the person who held the life estate, if you have a death certificate for that person, um, you record that and on record, the, the remainder man has um, full title to the whole property. The complexity with life estates comes during the lifetime of the person with the life estate, because now um, they're going to need permission from the person who's inheriting it from them to do basic things on their property. Um, because if the person who just holds the life estate takes out a mortgage, for example, the mortgage is going to evaporate upon their death. So no bank is going to lend on a property unless they get the um, the other person's permission. Same thing if the person who has, the person with the life estate can sell it to a third party, but that third party's ownership is going to end when that person who sold it to them dies. So you're always going to need the permission of the people who come later on. Um, so beware if you're going to do a life estate, giving the rest to your children, make sure that um, you have a good relationship and they'll, they'll cooperate with you for these sorts of things. What about with uh, revocable and irrevocable trusts? Um, the revocable trust is actually relatively simple. It's a drafting exercise with you and an attorney to put together, but it is fairly simple to operate. And when you um, pass away, it's fairly op- uh, easy to operate going forward. The only complexity is if you're running up against the estate tax, the assets that are in the revocable trust might be subject to that same estate tax um, and they'll have to be accounted for um, at the time of your death. Uh, Because if you come close to needing to pay the federal estate tax, you'll have to file a tax return showing the valuation of everything. Um, Even if if you don't owe anything, if you're just coming close to it, you'll have to file that to show it. So the revocable trust will be considered part of your estate for the the estate tax, um, but it's fairly simple to, to operate. The uh, 
irrevocable trust, similar complexities to operate, but just remember you can't take it back during your lifetime. Um, people will put things in an irrevocable trust if they have some estate tax concerns or people who um, maybe have um, the nursing home care concerns. Um, because if the, the assets are taken out of your name within enough years before um, needing the long-term care, you might be eligible to have the state um, pay for your long-term health care. So if that's a consideration, the irrevocable trust may still be for you, but for somebody uh, with a large real estate empire, it, it's, it's a fairly complicated, um, it's a fairly complicated and irreversible endeavor. Mm -hmm. What about for some people that just simply own their home, right? You know, it's, it's just a couple that might own their home and not a real estate empire, but they want to pass it on to their heirs. Um, you know, I guess every state's different with a look back period for, uh, you know, what might be included with, you know, local aid for paying for final, uh, final expenses or healthcare expenses if you're going to go into uh, a nursing home. But, you know, are there, is there any consideration there uh, with any of the matters that we've talked about for, you know, just people that are listening to this and, you know, maybe they have elderly parents who are going to pass away or at some point in the next couple of decades and they want to figure out what to do with the home? It depends kind of their overall goals. If you're, if it's a, if you're talking about high net worth people and you're trying to avoid taxes, um, then much of what we talked about applies. If they're a lower net worth person who's concerned about staying under the eligibility threshold for state care, um, then that's going to be a different set of concerns. And that's where we might do the irrevocable trust or the, um, the gifting of assets while they're still alive in order to preserve that eligibility. But it really depends um, on that particular person. Um, and, you know, I hate giving that answer. It depends. But those are the situations where it really, really does depend. And we would say probably speak with a estate planner uh, or tax attorney, you know, that's local to you, maybe somebody that you know in your area uh, who knows the local laws the best. Yeah, and same thing. If you're concerned about keeping um, certain types of government benefits, um, that there are specialists who will work on making sure that your assets are um, put in the right format so that you maintain that um, eligibility that might be important to you. Right. And finally, let's talk about uh, uh, the business entity situation and what happens if there is uh, no will or no estate planning. Um, so, you're, if you have, you know, if you have a corporation. What you own actually are the shares in the corporation. So that is an intangible asset that's going to get passed on. Um, in a partnership, you have the, the, your share of the partnership. You get the stepped up basis for that, um, whether it's a corporation and you know, your shares have gained value, um, if it, even if it's a holding entity for property. I don't know why you'd have a corporation necessarily for that, but your share in the business will get the, the stepped up basis just the same. Um, but you want to make sure that there are no provisions in the, the business agreement that disadvantage your heirs. Um, and so you may see situations where the heirs have to sell to the other partners at a predetermined price after they sell. That's largely in there to prevent somebody you know, who thinks they're partner, think, partnering with one person, that person dies, and now they're partners with all five of their grown children. Um, so there may be 
requirements provisions within the business agreement that you've you've put together with your partner um, but just know what those are and make sure that you're crafting an estate plan that you know fair and equitable and consistent across the board well it's it's a lot to discuss and it's a lot to think about and obviously this is really just designed to get your thoughts on um, you know the different matters of estate planning and ways that you could pass your assets on to uh, to to any heirs and you know we would advise you to speak with you know your local tax planners and estate planning attorneys uh, wherever you happen to be listening to this um, but you know still this is probably a discussion that is very complex uh, for a lot of people to to understand it's probably complex for even uh, attorneys who specialize in this and real estate professionals that specialize in this but i think that you know a lot of real estate gets um uh you know gets put on the market or passed on uh, be, because of situations where somebody passes away. And it's important for investors to understand these different ways that real estate is, you know, is passed from one person to another, because that property that, you know, might be uh, on the market or that house down the street that you've been eyeing, uh, that, you know, you've known that, you know, this elderly couple's lived in for a long time and you're wondering what's going to happen next, uh, you know, if and when they pass away. Uh, you know, you, you kind of need to know what the situation is with uh, with the ownership of that property and how that might um, how that might affect you know an offer you're going to put in on it or how you're going to approach them or the time frame that's involved with uh, acquiring a a property such as that. That's a very good point. If you know what the situation is of the the prospective sellers, if they were if they passed away without a will, you know that you're going to be subject to a lot of court oversight before they can even sell you the property. So you're going to have to be patient. You may have to be working with multiple people. If it was put into a well-organized trust, you might just be dealing with one professional trustee. Um, and that's going to change your strategy as a buyer as you interact with the estate. Mm -hmm. So Rory, what are some key takeaways uh, that people listening to this can, can go do right now or that are actionable or just some things to keep in mind uh, as, as we're finishing up this episode about death and real estate? First point for uh, somebody who has a lot of, a lot in the way of real estate assets, it's your estate planning is going to be a little different from somebody who just holds a lot of bank account or retirement account interests. Um, your estate planning is going to look a little bit different if you have a lot in the way of real estate. Um, second, there are a lot of relatively simple and easy ways to, to craft your estate to make sure that it accomplishes the goals of getting your assets to the right people, avoiding uh, taxes as much as possible, um, and to avoid extra complexities that's out there. And then specifically for the real estate investors, the the key concept is a stepped-up basis. This could be irrelevant in a couple of years if that goes away, but the stepped-up basis um, is the key concept that you want to understand um, in giving your um, your real estate assets to your heirs without the burden of capital gains tax. And with that, uh, in a very ominous, I don't know, way to conclude this episode, uh, the church bell has started tolling. I could hear it in the background along with the airplanes taking off and it is not the top of the hour. So that usually tells me that there's a funeral procession that is happening throughout uh, our neighborhood uh, here in South Boston where we record this. So it was very fitting uh, that the bell just started tolling as we finished this episode. All right. We'll be back in a week with a much more pleasant, upbeat topic. Um, but this is an important one that I am asked quite a bit. And I'm sitting down with a lot of people lately to, to go over some of these concepts to make sure that their estate, whether it's simple or complex, is, um, is addressed.
Right. Let's remind everybody uh, how to reach out to you, Rory, in case you heard something that you want more information about or some clarification, or you'd like to figure out uh, how you guys can work together. If the topics of today interest you, reach out to me. I'm at Urban Village Legal, urbanvillagelegal.com. Or if you want some information about the real estate market, um, you can also find me at Next Home Title Town. That's nexthometitletown.com. Excellent. And this is the Real Estate Law Podcast. Uh, if you've made it this far on the episode, uh, we really appreciate your listening to the entire episode. And we would love it if you give us a big like on YouTube or write us a review on one of the podcast platforms and subscribe to this uh, this podcast feed or our account on YouTube because that really helps us out to deliver this message to more and more uh, people like you to uh, who are really interested in real estate, real estate uh, law, real estate investing, and death and real estate in the, in the case of today's episode. So Rory, thank you so much for all your time today. We really appreciate it. All right. Thanks, Jason. And I'll look forward to doing this again next week. Yep. We'll see you next time. This has been the Real Estate Law Podcast. Because real estate is more than just pretty pictures, and law goes well beyond the paperwork and courtroom arguments. We're powered by Next Home Title Town, Greater Boston's progressive real estate brokerage. More at nexthometitletown.com. And Urban Village Legal, Massachusetts Real Estate Council, serving savvy property owners, lenders, and investors. More at urbanvillagelegal.com. Today's conversation was not legal advice, but we hope you found it entertaining and informative. Discover more at realestatelawpodcast.com. Thank you for listening.